Hi, I'm Jody Millman, and this is Backstage with the Bardavon. Our podcast will draw back the curtain and bring you backstage at the Bardavon 1869 Opera House that is located in Poughkeepsie, New York. For more than 150 years, notables such as Mark Twain, Frank Sinatra, James Earl Jones, Tom Jones, Santana, Aretha Franklin, and John Legend have graced its stage. Today we have two special guests, Emmy-nominated and Grammy award-winning musicians Jay Unger and Molly Mason. For more than four decades, the pair has brought their love and folk, country, swing, and Zydeco expertise to the Hudson Valley through their involvement with the Ashokan Center in Shokin, New York, recordings, books, and educational programs. In addition to scoring motion pictures like Legends of the Fall, they've worked with Ken Burns on several of his documentaries, including the award-winning Civil War and Huey. Mr. Burns praised Molly and Jay, remarking that they play music from the heart, which reminds us of the best in all of us. As part of the Greater Poughkeepsie Library District's Big Read, Jay and Molly will be featured musicians with the Hudson Valley Philharmonic, playing the music of Appalachia. Jay and Molly, welcome to Backstage with the Bardavon. Well, I have with me uh, Jay Unger and Molly Mason and Tom. What is your last name, Tom? Tom. Tom Crum, okay. And uh, we're here on the stage of the Bardavon, and we're going to chat a little bit about what you're working on now and the big event that's happening tomorrow night. So first, why don't you tell me a little bit about your music? Um, I know everybody in the Hudson Valley knows that you guys are the voices and the wonderful strings behind the Shokin Farewell from the Civil War, but you're known for things other than that. So why don't you tell us a little bit about the Shokin Center and your involvement and your fiddle camp and dance camp. Because to me, part of part of what we like to do is educate people and also make them aware that these things exist. So if people are interested, they can sign up and send their kids next summer. So why don't you tell me a little bit about it? Great. Well, it's, okay. and it's not, you can't just send your kids. You can't because just send your kids. it's not a kid's camp. It's a family camp? It's a family camp. And, and, and a lot it, of adults, just adults Mostly come. adults, yeah. Mostly yeah. adults. Yeah. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they do love coming to camp. Yes. So it's a summer camp for adults. Yeah, pretty much. And there is a week that's called family camp, and Tom's dad, John, yeah. runs, that. John runs that. John Crown. Does he really? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's great. So that's we really focus on uh, making everything accessible and fun for everybody in the family. So it's not just a kids' camp, and it's not just an adults' camp, but it really bridges that gap and gives you a lot of things that you can do together. And well, what do kids do all day? I mean, what do, what do adults do all day? What are the family, what kind of activities? Well, the, the family part. At, fam- at family camp? Well, at family camp, we've, it's, uh, you've got classes in instruments. You've got classes in different kinds of dance. We've got, uh, we make use of the really incredible outdoor education program that Ashokan offers. There's and some crafts. Yeah, crafts. Making There's things. making things. You Nature can go hikes, on swimming. A hike. Yeah, go down to the gorge, go... Uh, yeah, it's it's sort of it it's is a beautiful what you want area. It, to be. it is beautiful. There's, really beautiful. There's dancing every night. Um, yeah, you singing really, together. Singing together. Are there yeah. little cabins on the site, or where do people stay? There's a, there's a mixture of private rooms true. and bunk houses and camping, and uh, yeah, all those options. That's incredible. How many people do you get in a week? Our biggest weeks um, are probably the music. F- mostly for adults that Jay, yeah. Jay's been, he started in 1980, so we're going up on our 40th year. Anniversary. Congratulations. Anniversary. Anniversary. Yep, yep, mm-hmm. yep. And um, 
those, how many people? I would say kind of a 160, 170, yeah. right in there is a, a common There was one that was really great. big this year, wasn't there? Wasn't there one that was about 180 or something? Yeah, yeah there, we had a we big, experimented we had a big one this with year. More yeah. people. Which was nice. I liked <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, it wasn't bad. It, was nice. it was great. I always have to say <clears> that um, when Jay and I started to um, work more at the Ashokan Center because uh, SUNY New Paltz, the college, had owned it for decades, and they put it up for sale in 2006. And in order to keep it, uh, 375 acres and the history of it and our music camps, which had been running for 25, 30 years at that point, in order to keep everything going and all the environmental ed things, uh, we kind of started getting more involved. And one of the first things we did was realize, well, if we're going to keep this thing going, we've got to figure out how to, you know, increase business here, keep business going, make more people come here, make Open it. Open it to the community. Right. <laughs> and uh, sort of the only thing that he and I really knew how to do was, was music, was music camps. So we, you know, ramped up from, I think, four a year, four music camps that we'd been doing New for a long time. Swing, Northern Center. Yes. Yeah, to yes, 12. To now. 12 music camps. So we're doing a lot more music camps than we used to. So they're not just summer camps. There's, uh, in the spring, many of the weekends have weekend camps. And those are good for people, if families or individual adults who, um, you know, just want to spend that much time immersed up to their eyeballs in music yeah. and dancing. And, and what really kind of really instruments do you teach them? Yeah, okay, well, it mostly ranges, it's mostly connected to American traditional roots music. So it's mostly stringed instruments. Um, there are also piano, which has strings, of course, mm -hmm. uh, accordions. Bass. Uh, percussion, and uh, Western and Swing Week has... Uh, wind instruments as well. Uh, sometimes there's flute in one of the other weeks. Yeah, too. Northern week a lot of the time has flute. Flute and whistle. But there are all these traditions that are, it started with fiddle traditions and all the instruments that play with fiddles. So that would be banjo, mandolin, guitar, and then eventually accordion, bass, drums, piano. And um, there are fiddling traditions in America, you know, in New England and Quebec. Um, Nova Scotia, uh, in the south, in the Appalachian Mountains. In the Midwest. Blue, bluegrass music, old-time music, Cajun music, Zydeco music. In the West, there's uh, Western Swing, and then there's that whole era of vintage jazz, which had jazz violinists like uh, Joe Venuti, Stefan Grappelli. Mm -hmm. and, Stuff uh, Smith. Stuff Smith. So we touch on all, all of that, and each program has a different focus. The other part that Molly mentioned was the, the outdoor education and environmental education programs. They started in the 60s at Ashokan, and it was called the Ashokan Field Campus of SUNY New Paltz. And uh, those programs serve about 5,000 elementary school kids a year. And those we our new organization supports those as well. And that's actually the biggest single part of what we're doing there. And uh, kids come from Monday to Wednesday or Wednesday to Friday, although some schools would just come for a day program, come in the morning, leave in the afternoon. And it's outdoor education, environmental science, and living history, 
which includes crafts like blacksmithing, broom making, tinsmithing, our 1817 schoolhouse, 1830s homestead, a kind of John Burroughs era writer's cabin. It's really a, a broad and interesting program. And fourth, fifth, and sixth graders are really open to new things, and it's a great time for them to be exposed to all of this. And in fact, I think the majority, or at least 50% of our uh, children are coming from New York City and Long Island, and now an increasing number are from underserved schools. We've started a fund to su support schools that wouldn't normally afford it. And uh, for many kids, it's their first chance to be in the woods or to see the stars at night. How do they find out about the program? Well, it's, it, it, the schools bring them. So we're uh, known to schools. Schools talk to each other. We reach out to schools. So a school will bring their entire fifth grade, say. If a teacher were to look up on the internet places to bring kids for, um, you know, for an overnight program, we'd, we'd be on the list. But yeah. we can say the way to find out about it is ashokancenter.org. Yes, that's Ashokan true. Center. So that's the name of the new nonprofit that we formed in 2006, and then by 2008, um, our new entity was able to take over the entire historic nature preserve and all the programs and keep them alive. Is the camp open during the winter? Yes, we're open oh, all really? winter. Open school all winter. Year, school year, yeah. It gets very slow in January. It February. does. <laughs> not a lot of action in January. I was going to say that not too many schools probably want to have their kids tramping around in the snow. Mm -hmm. Right, and then there's the, the issue about will the bus be the able to get there right. in time. Or, mm -hmm. yeah. right. But I must say, it is a winter wonderland, this place. <laughs> it is great. You know, I mean, winter. to describe the site, 385 actually acres. Ah, okay. uh, we have a 90-foot gorge with waterfalls that fall into it. There are fields, forests, streams. Um, there are buildings that go back. Even the foundation of Winchell's Inn was built in the probably 1760s by the first European residents. And Lenape Indians used it as a hunting and fishing grounds for centuries before that. So it's really a pretty remarkable place. Is it near the Ashokan Reservoir? Am I yes. right? Quarter of a mile from there. Quarter of a mile from there. And does any of your land abut the reservoir, or you're it, set back from it? it? We're set back a bit. We well, abut reservoir property. It does, mm -hmm. um, it, it does touch uh, property owned by the reservoir folks. Mm -hmm. Oh, in yeah. fact, our 385 acres is partially owned by the, C the New York City DEP. We have a joint use area where uh, the lowest parts of the land where the Esopus comes out of the reservoir. It's a creek. Right. Yeah, and it goes all the way 32 miles up to Saugerties south and then through Kingston up to Saugerties. It's the outlet when um, the Ashokan Reservoir is releasing turbid water that's not fit for drinking water for the city. So at those times, the New York City DEP will release up to 600 million gallons a day. I guess they open it. It gets kind of exciting. Spill, down the spillway, right? The, sp the it, spillway it's, it's is south. Before the spillway. Before the spillway. It is. It's, it's right in the center of the reservoir, actually. They have a, 
uh, a way to to let it out of the west side usually. Have but, you ever been down there when the when there's a drought? Do, have and you there's ever, almost nothing. And it's so the, low, yeah. It's low, and then also you see the remainder of the yes, town that they flooded. Amazing. To me, yes. that's always so incredible when you go up there and you get to see that. And there yeah. really is more. There's arguably eight at least, or maybe twelve towns that it's, were it's, flooded. It was that many. Oh, I thought there was just yes. one. Oh no, there was. I mean, it's a huge reservoir, so it's, it makes yes. sense. It's something like 130 or so billion gallons of water. Wow. That's incredible. <laughs> and the city uses a one and a half million gallons a day, roughly. Mm -hmm. So we could do the math. Right. <laughs> and it's 40%, apparently, of the system. There are many reservoirs. Yeah. Mm. This is just one. Well, it's beautiful. It's really nice to be able to go up there and walk around. Oh and for you to God. be able to have it's your camp inspiring. so close to that. That's it's so that's exciting. kind of new. I mean, relatively new for the New York City DEP office who, uh, you know, takes charge of the reservoir and, and, and keeps it running and all that. And I, in the last, I don't know how many years, 20 maybe, 25, they've done more of that, more of public access, which is, is really great and much appreciated. Right, that's a beautiful walkway. It so. is. It's a really nice walkway. And you can also buy permits and take your little rowboats out. Mm -hmm. yes. They let you take the rowboats yeah. out in the... Are there robotic rowboats? I'm just <laughs> no. I don't know why that Robotic out. robots? <laughs> well, <laughs> this brings me back to a show can farewell, though, because without that tune, we couldn't have saved this property. Really? Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, well, what happened in 2006, it's up for sale. The college is trying to sell it. We're sort of like, oh, my gosh, all this is going to come to an end. And then um, we remembered that uh, two years before that, because of Ashokan Farewell, we had performed at Gettysburg, and the featured speaker was a Civil War buff named um, Governor Pataki. And at the, and we <laughs> I do know, yes. <laughs> and at the end of our performance, we played Ashokan Farewell. And he tears up whenever he hears it, and he came over and told us how much he loves it. So he was governor in 2006. So I wrote him a letter and said, the place that inspired that tune, because that's where the tune comes from, for me, for my heart, from my connection to this place, is about to be sold by the State University. And we want to have an opportunity to create a nonprofit and save it. And he helped big time. Uh, he connected us with the Open Space Institute. They helped us work with the New York City DEP, and eventually our new nonprofit was formed and was able to do this. And this year, our 40th, well, 2020, our 40th anniversary, we're going to have an event in New York City at the Cathedral of St. John the Divine. Oh, that's magnificent. And um, Governor Pataki has agreed to be the honorary chairman of our benefit committee. Oh, that's exciting. It's going to be in May. So visit AshokanCenter.org to find right. out more. To find out more, exactly. <laughs> so when you're not involved with the Ashokan projects, um, I'm assuming that you're writing music. Yes. Have any, any new music in the pipeline that you're working on? Well, the piece that we're playing tonight, <laughs> uh, Daybreak in the Mountains, was uh, based on something that Molly and I recorded in 1984 with our band Fiddle Fever. We brought Tom in to create an orchestral arrangement, and uh, that's the closing part of our three pieces. Mm -hmm. uh, the first one is really this 
crazy fun fiddle medley because of the Appalachian theme tonight. It's a very old tune from the British Isles that could be found in Appalachia, then a, a more kind of indigenous Appalachian tune, and then a, a tune that I wrote that uh, is in the spirit of those tunes. Now, you're, you're performing tonight with the Hudson Valley Philharmonic as part of the Big Read, which is, uh, I, I believe it's, I forget, Rick, forget the name of the author, who is the subject of the Big Read, but it's his stories from Appalachia. What makes Appalachian music different from the other type of music that you play normally, from the country, the swing, the jazz? How would you describe it being different? Well, music is different all over the country. So if you go to Appalachia, which is North Carolina, Virginia. Uh, Smoky Mountains. Smoky Mountains, uh, yeah, Kentucky. Um, their music style, the tunes they play, what they sound like are different. And if you go to Texas, they're different. And if you go to Washington State, where I'm from, they're different. So go to Minnesota, where I also lived for a while, they're different. So every little region of the country has a style that's a little different. And they shift uh, a lot like um, languages. Where do you know where, like, accents. like in accents. Europe, accents change? Well, in the United States, dialects change. The dialects change here. But um, in, it's really in that Europe, way. Where, yeah. where countries that speak different languages, if you go to the region that is really close to where they meet, the language really gets morphy between the two languages of those countries. Not in every place, maybe, but a, a lot of the time. So music is a lot like that as well. It, is well, there anything distinctive, though, about Appalachian I think, music? I think well, so. Sure. One distinctive thing is African-American influence. Totally, yeah. yep. I mean, we're, we almost were going to use a banjo tonight, but we're not, actually. But the banjo is actually from Africa, oh, yeah. and it's an important part of that culture. I, I and think then the bluesy, the yes. kind of scales, the, mm -hmm. the syncopated rhythms And, you know, Appalachia is whole... The whole region was really a big melting pot of a lot of different cultures. Like people often think of the mountains as predominantly isolated. white, totally isolated. I was just going to say isolated, yeah. Huge, huge cultural mesh going on there where you had, you know, people playing music of all sorts of influence, blues music, and then you had this old time Appalachian music, and you've got a whole melding of cultures that were happening in these mountains. Yeah, I mean, th the notion of the isolation producing things is being dispelled today. One of the researchers who's done a book on this recently is named Phil Jameson. Yep. He came to our music and dance camps in 1980. I think he was a teenager. And he joined the Greengrass Cloggers, which was a North Carolina dance troupe that did this clogging-style dance. And uh, from there, he wound up moving from upstate New York to North Carolina, becoming really like a native of that part of the world and a, a great musician and dancer. And then he, a, a school teacher. And then eventually started doing research on this very subject we're talking about. And he started to discover there was a lot more connection going on. People traveling between communities, the train itself, you know, the fact that people could jump on a train. Uh, even horse-drawn vehicles, and that people, music, people who are interested in music are always interested in other kinds of music, even though may, their heart may be with their own, and influences are constantly happening. 
So that isolation thing maybe isn't so important after all. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about working with uh, Ken Burns on his documentaries, specifically yeah. the Civil War? Because that's it's got you have to have some fascinating stories. Well, working with Ken, he's great. He's he an incredible is great. character. He's a really musical Person. guy. I don't believe he plays an instrument, but he he really is musical. What he hears and um, you know how he understands it was great. Um, my memory, which I've told a bunch of times, but I'll tell it again, was, was with maybe our first gig with Ken, which was pre-Civil War. Uh, it was another film, I think called The Congress. I think that was our first one. We went up to Boston to a studio, which is where he was working. And at that one, um, he had already created the film, and he had hired uh, a music coordinator to make the music fit the film. And so my memory is that we would go into the recording studio and we would, they'd say, we want this tune, and they'd tell us the mood that they wanted it in, and they would tell us it needs to be this many seconds long. And we would play. And we'd most of the time get pretty close, but it's really hard to make a tune be exactly 36 seconds long or whatever it is. So it was... Okay, that didn't that didn't quite make it, so we're going to do it again. And often it took five, six, seven, eight times to get it to close enough the timing that they could use it. And by that time, the musicians are just kind of worn out and really don't have any guts or feeling anymore. No, no. And and also they're so they're so concerned and worried about. I hope I get it right this time. I gotta oh I gotta I gotta count the seconds and you know. Um, so during that film, about halfway through the, the finishing the music for that film, maybe on the second day, the, the guy wasn't there, and Ken said, um, I'm going to do this now, and here's what's going to happen for this scene, and he would often show us the scene of the film he was talking about and say, I want this song, you guys know this song, and I want it slower than usual and really sad, you know, or he'd just describe what kind of a feeling he'd want. And we'd go in, and we'd play it, and once in a while he'd say, eh, not quite that slow, or that was great, and, but most of the time. And he would just say, okay, great, that was great. And with the idea that he's now going to match the pictures in the film changing to fit the length of the music that he liked. So he'd, he'd get a really good take of music, and then he'd fit the pictures to match the music. It makes so sense, right? He was really hands-on. He was pretty darn hands-on. Oh, yeah. And yeah. the Civil War series, the, the scenes weren't fully edited yet, and we didn't see them. And he would describe the emotional content, and we would try different versions of tunes and different uh, instrumentation. And everything was recorded live to stereo two-track, which means no mixing, uh, editing was possible later, and we just did take after take after take of different different moods and types of things. And then the, the next process was he and his crew would start to create the scene, uh, you know, iron it out so it had its actual length. They tried different voiceovers. They had many takes of the same person reading it uh, and then trying different takes of the music until... He felt it had the emotional 
impact he was looking for. It's like highly focused on emotional impact. So it's almost like weaving. There'd be picture, sound effects, voiceovers, and music, and those would be all woven together to create the end product, which took five years. I was going to ask how long it took. But for us, it was two days. No. Two days of recording really? all day. And Ken had this other thing that he did. We, we did. We've done many, many, like a dozen of films with him, and he, he has always done this. Today we're just going in to get some ideas. This isn't, we'll come back and so do the final things. Because he wants spontaneity. <laughs> and, and that, you know, we did that. All these, one take of this, one take of this, one take this way, one take that way. And then it becomes a soundtrack and it wins a Grammy. <laughs> <laughs> You've also done some other movie scores in addition to documentaries. You did The Legend of the Fall. Everybody knows that I play that film. on it. Mm-hmm. But it's a James Horner score. Beautiful score. score. Oh, a phenomenal a guy score. to work yes. with, also. And you've done. There's Sad another one. Is it the, the Great Divide, or there's one that you the recently divide. did? The divide. the divide. Why don't you tell tell me a little bit about that? Well, you know, um, that is a fairly recent one. Will be out available in January. It will be available yeah. in January. Um, I'll, I'll tell you how we found out about it. We were playing a gig, which we do. We play a lot of gigs up in up in Vermont. And this woman came up from the audience when we were done and was chatting with us, and she said, will you guys go out to dinner with me and my husband? Um, My brother is an actor, and he wants to make a film, and he wants you guys to do the music. And we needed dinner, so we're like, okay. Sure. (laughs) Okay. But, you know. So it turns out that her brother lives in in L.A., or actually he lives some. more in Central California, but he spends a lot of time in L.A., and he's a really well-known actor, and he's a big fan. Perry King. Perry King. Oh, Perry King, sure. Yeah. And uh, so he wanted to make his own movie because he was sick of only being able, at an, at his older age. I was just going to say, he's more mature now. Very, yeah, very close to Jay's age, and uh, but the only roles Whatever he that is. could get <laughs> were... She's calling you old. ...were... Um, roles where he killed somebody or was killed and he just kind of had had enough so he found uh, I don't know how he found the story but it's it's very sweet it's from 1970s I think he developed it with Jana Brown they developed it together I think so no killing right 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 no really no violence um it's a story of a of a dysfunctional family on a drought inflicted ranch in the high sierras well, a guy whose family is gone and uh, you know disconnected. He has a a ranch hand who's a, a drifter, and he's starting to get Alzheimer's. And it's 1976, and Alzheimer's hasn't been uh, diagnosed yet. And it it doesn't sound like it's going to turn out well, but it has a very heartwarming, uplifting ending, and it's beautiful and it's black and white. Oh, yeah. And, and how long did it take you to record that? Months. Um, months. Really? Well, really, mostly a summer, I, I remember. I think yeah. we did most well, of it. Well, both that's months. <laughs> <laughs> right, yes. It's the summer months, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that we were working with the film and inspired by the film itself. Yeah. It was fun, though. 
So as I said uh, tonight, you're going to be here. We're going to be wrapping up because all the musicians are coming in. Yeah, yeah, yeah we're in their way now. We're, I guess we're in their way. We're here on the stage of the Bardavon. And as I said, we've got a Hudson Valley Philharmonic performance in connection with the Big Read program. It's Tales of Appalachia and Hemingway. I was enticed by that. Ah. The music of Appalachia. You're going to be performing Daybreak in the Mountains. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The Lover's Waltz and Devil's Dream. Yes. yes. All of your compositions. Devil's De- Dream is a, an old trad fiddle tune, and actually that is a medley also that has three different tunes. Starts with Devil's Dream, but that's a tune that fiddlers all over the country play that mm-hmm. tune. It's I heard around. it when I was a little kid on the West Coast. It's one of the first tunes that I ever learned. Yes. And I'd say it's at least 200 years old. <laughs> if a day makes us feel young and there you go yeah style. it's all over the place it is all over the place yeah. well it should be an exciting program tonight and i want to thank you for joining me thank you, you are here welcome. on the bar the Look stage up. of the bardavon we're gonna have fun that's for sure you are well are thanks you? again and good luck tonight thank you thanks again to jay unger and molly mason and the bardavon theater for hosting our backstage with the bardavon podcast Backstage with the Bardavon is produced by Patrick Watson and Jody Millman. Sound engineering and editing is by Ben Harris. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at backstagebroadcast.com or our Facebook page at Backstage with the Bardavon. Thanks again for listening and see you next time Backstage with the Bardavon.